What's the state of your company's culture? Has the pandemic demonstrated its resilience and strengths? Or has it raised awareness for a need to improve? In this episode, I speak to Hilton Barber, a marketing and culture consultant working at the intersection of strategy and culture, about what each of us can do as leaders and as individuals to build a company culture where people can thrive. So I think we're in a time of great introspection. And as we talked about before, that introspection is perhaps the most enormous opportunity for organizations and leaders around the world. What are you going to do with this introspection? And how are you going to change based on that introspection? Is perhaps the largest question sitting on the table at every organization right now. Hilton has worked with major brands across the world to help them become more adept at handling change and more effective at creating extraordinary customer experiences. He holds a strong belief in the power of organizational culture to transform organizations and sees culture as the true competitive differentiator for organizations in the 21st century. So, ready to dive into how organizations, leaders, and individuals can build a strong company culture that leads to a better future? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Hilton Barber, thank you for joining me. Always a pleasure chatting with you, Rebecca. Glad we had an opportunity to connect today. Me too. Yeah, me too. It sounds like we're both sufficiently caffeinated on our early mornings, so this should be a great conversation. (laughs) On a topic that we're both really interested in, in relation to company culture. Mm -hmm. So you've had a lot of experience, not even just diving into company culture, understanding how cultural transformations can happen in organizations, but you've also had a series of interviews with a lot of top companies that are well known for their culture, including Starbucks and Southwest Airlines. Mm -hmm. We had this conversation before about how the pandemic has been somewhat of a litmus test to the strength and health of a company's culture. And so how do you feel that, you know, the COVID pandemic and the expansion of remote work has tested the strength and quality of company cultures? Truth of the matter is, I've always had a deep-seated belief that your culture really is the only true sustainable competitive advantage any organization has. And secondly, it really is the truest accelerant or impediment of your strategy. And that all sounds very academic and delightfully highbrow. The reality is, as organizations have faced the largest challenge probably in 50 or maybe 100 years to their survival, the ability of their culture to respond appropriately is really been the most important thing that the companies that have succeeded, or shall we say for the moment, have continued to thrive, I would suggest are those that have had a cogent and well-documented or well-understood culture. Those that have struggled, those that have perhaps been less agile, I would suggest that if you were to do an audit or some kind of forensics within their organization, you would probably find that culture was a significant contributor to that, the inability to make decisions the internal organizational silos. I would suggest much of that, or entirely all of that, comes down to their culture. So when you ask about how uh, organizations have responded to the pandemic, and the reality, like you and I are both doing this morning, seated in a room in our houses that have become our offices, 
would say those organizations who had a well-understood culture probably leaps and bounds were ahead of those organizations whose cultures weren't used to autonomy, distributed workforces, or even decision-making and collaboration over geographic distance. So for me, time and again, it comes back to your organization's ability to work with agility is really, first and foremost, the culture's ability to work like that under duress. So that's really fascinating because, of course, a lot of organizations could never have really seen this coming. There were a lot of organizations that were exploring the expansion of remote work because there's been a lot of data that has shown that employees often enjoy the flexibility involved with remote work. Mm -hmm. Some employees enjoy the fact that they can disconnect from their physical workspace when they need to. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it helps folks be able to handle their family responsibilities, sometimes better if they can not have to worry about commute times and things like that. So there are some organizations, I think, that were primed for the expansion of remote work, but not necessarily management channels, I think, or leadership channels that were prepared for the differences in leadership or leading people who are working remote. Do you have any success stories about folks that you've seen in leadership that has made that transition well, or even maybe some stories of folks that may may be learning the hard way about the challenges associated with leading a remote workforce? Well, I think let's go directly to some folks who've done an excellent job of at least listening, Rebecca. I think truth of the matter is the pandemic, we're now six months into it. And in the history of an organization, that's a blinking of an eye. You know, and I think certainly for large global organizations, just the sheer complexity of what they have to deal with just to stay afloat, let alone adapt. I think we should take pause and ask how realistic it is for organizations to be doing this well when, to your point, this is probably something that's sat on the shelf or they've pushed off for several years. So that sort of six months, it's been an incredibly intense six months for a lot of organizations, of course. I've seen some recent stuff out of Microsoft, which is probably the most encouraging set of data around really just listening to the organization, because the examples you gave, I think, are excellent. But by the same token, there are also a slew of other examples of people who desperately want to go into an office, into a physical space, who desperately feel trapped in their one-bedroom condominium with a goldfish as the only source of companionship. Or those people, perhaps like myself, who genuinely relish being in a room with your colleagues and a whiteboard and sort of an hour of time to say, how can we make this idea better? So I think you're absolutely right. There are individuals whose lives have been significantly enhanced by not having to have a two-hour commute. But equally, there have been people who've been disrupted because that routine is missing. They're having to work inside a home environment where they have newborn children screaming in the background while they're on a Zoom call. So I think that spectrum of adaptability at an individual level has been enormous. And for any astute organization, recognizing that spectrum has been important and recognizing that a one-size-fits-all solution is probably the most disingenuous thing that they can do for their people. So you ask about people who are doing it right. Truthfully, I don't know who's doing it right right now because it will be incredibly individual. And that's the thing about your culture. Your culture is yours uniquely and individually. And that to see something from Twitter to say, oh, people are going to work remotely until 
June of next year or work remotely forever is great for Twitter and perhaps great for the Twitter culture. But to think that you can copy and paste that into your organization and do the same things and achieve the same results, I think is perhaps a naive expectation. At best, and the strong recommendation that I would make is, have you been listening to your organization? Have you been constantly probing and prodding and questioning your people? And have you been looking for signs from your culture that you have been able to adapt? What is the speed of decision-making? What is the level of collaboration? Where are the parts of those informal networks inside your company thriving? And where, by the same token, are those things falling apart? That, I would suggest, is the very first thing that organizations need to be doing and not looking to an organization like Microsoft or Twitter or Facebook and saying, I'll do what they're doing and hope that it works for you. I would suggest the likelihood of that is infinitesimally small. Yeah, such very important points. And I, I've seen that trajectory. Many of us have seen folks trying to copy either the culture or the methodologies or the processes of large successful organizations or even those organizations where we have a perception of success. There's been interesting questions around uh, company cultures in relation to Google, for instance, so Google seeing both pros and cons in relation to their culture, or Amazon, great example. Mm -hmm. um, Amazon's culture, of course, both having pros and cons as well, perception being detrimental to folks, especially on their warehouse, warehouse workers, mm -hmm. but also very pro-customer culture that they um, try to emulate in everything that they do. Um, I think your points are really, really important to think about. So if an organization's thinking about, you know, what makes their individual company culture, how are they different than those large organizations that have found success? Mm -hmm. What would you recommend for these folks to explore as they find their own company culture identity and even potentially think about how they can improve it? Well, I think the two examples you just gave, Google and Amazon, are great. They're a classic polarizing set of examples because you're right. For those of us who live outside of those organizations, at best, we can only observe what we believe is the culture. The reality is that the culture is what happens inside the organization by the people and employees who work there. They're the only ones who can truly say, this is the culture here because they're the ones that are impacted by it. They are the ones that are swimming in it day to day. They see how decisions are made. They see how their colleagues behave. And in classic fashion, they see the behaviors that are rewarded or ridiculed. And ultimately, for all the many pithy quotes around what culture is and isn't, I'm always struck by one that a colleague reminded me of recently. And they said, the mark of your culture is what happens at the edges of your organization on the very worst day in your And I thought that was incredibly profound because what it signaled was if you have a cogent and well-understood culture, in a situation like the pandemic that we're facing right now, the people 10,000 miles away from headquarters either know what to do or they don't. They know how they should culturally respond or they are trapped like deer in the headlight. So if, you, if you're if you asking me what a leader of, your of any organization should be doing in this moment, I would suggest they need to firstly recognize that they probably have the least 
objective view of their culture of anybody in the building. There's no leader of an organization who probably doesn't paint a rosier picture of their culture than the person the furthest away from them in terms of tenure and seniority. It's just a reality. And why is that? Because, you know, you lead the organization. The ultimate buck stops with you. You understand the strategy of the company more than anyone else. So it's not surprising you probably are the least objective about your culture. That's probably point number one. Point number two really is look around and consider how decisions are made at your organization. Look at how easy or difficult it is to move things forward. Look at the types of behaviors that happen around you. All the classic moments of things like great ideas can come from anywhere, but only if you're a senior SVP and have been working at this company for a decade. I mean, we say a lot of things inside our organizations, and sadly, time and again, we often act incongruently from those things. So if there's something that you can as a leader acknowledge, it's first that you're probably less objective about your culture than the people around you. And secondly, take a moment of pause and just deeply reflect on some of those things. How do we behave around here? How do we act? How do we make decisions? And what do we reward and what do we ridicule? Those are the beginnings of understanding how your culture really is and what it really does and means to the people around you. Yeah, there's so many directions I can go from what you just said, Hilton. <laughs> but this would be a very long episode if I went all of those directions. <laughs> but I have many thoughts, many thoughts. But I'm going to go to one. And you talked about what, okay. what is rewarded. And this is mm -hmm. a topic I bring up often because yeah. this is the thing that perpetuates in organizations. You can say one thing, but if you reward a behavior that is not mm -hmm. congruent with the culture you um, – claim to have, yes. then that behavior will continue. And I want to bring up one that we kind of touched on in a, our conversations before we actually started recording in relation to kind of hustle culture and mm -hmm. working long hours. Many organizations reward that type of unhealthy behavior. So working many hours, working weekends, working evenings, that behavior is rewarded in organizations often. And sometimes these same organizations will also have well-being initiatives, for instance, in relation to, you know, looking out for your health and well-being. Mm -hmm. But also mm -hmm. on the flip side of that coin are rewarding folks for working excessive hours. You know, what are your thoughts around that type of dichotomy to organizations that are trying to promote the well-being of their employees, but also are pushing this idea that working too much is good. It shows dedication. It shows commitment. You're a team player and that yeah. and those kind of messages. You know, do you see those things in organizations or what are your thoughts around that? Well, the short answer is those are incredibly detrimental to your culture. End of story. In, in fact, sorry, let me rephrase that. They're not detrimental to your culture. They reinforce the culture that you have. End of story. Because people will look to what is rewarded and take their gauge from that. Again, in the lexicon of pithy culture definitions, another one I'm very fond of is, your culture is defined by the worst behavior tolerated by your leadership. End of story. And I think that can encapsulate that dichotomy of having a well-being and wellness program whilst extolling the virtues of people who are on the verge of burning out or deeply fatigued because of the pressure that's been put on them. I think invariably, 
And this is the reality, perhaps exacerbated by COVID. But I think for a lot of employees, they look to the inside their organization and they feel a degree of cynicism, a degree of skepticism about the difference between what is communicated and what is rewarded. Because for every bright, cheerful poster on a wall that isn't met entirely by a similar set of behaviors and actions, the people will look to the actions and take their gauge and guide from the actions. So if you communicate that you have a well-being program and then promote Sarah and Johnny because they worked 36 hours of the last 48, people will take the Johnny and Sarah promotion as a guide for what is expected and what is rewarded inside your culture. And that's the reality. It's not what we say. It's what we do and how we act. It's as simple as that. Right. And I think that you're exactly right. And I've seen many examples of that, you know, and even just sometimes water cooler conversations about you know, yeah, yeah, I heard what they said in that meeting or that, mm -hmm. you know, email or that whatever it is, is the communication method within your organization. I heard that positive message about how amazing we are, but that's all fluff. Mm -hmm. That's not how it really works here. Absolutely. And I think you hear that in a lot of large organizations in particular, that there is this disconnect between the message they're hearing from their leadership about the positivity and what they're actually experiencing. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to go a different direction on this as well, mm -hmm. because I'm on a roll, <laughs> which is... The joy of a couple of coffees in the morning. So this is perfect. That's right. This That's right. Perfect. I've got them two in and probably another one after this call. The fact that that dichotomy exists, people in the organizations experience those behaviors, like you mentioned, they see the behaviors from their leadership, that this, they see the behaviors around them that are rewarded. They start to believe the messages that are coming down about how positive things are around them are fluff. They don't necessarily see it as accurate, but they understand the need to put on a mask and pretend like it's the truth, mm -hmm. right? They are afraid to speak up against the dichotomy mm -hmm. or recognize that publicly to their leadership, you know, or so forth, because sometimes speaking up is a risk in those types of organizations, because the perception is that it, it must remain this positive perception of the organization. And if you don't exhume the positive, then you must be not a team player or you must not be on board with the with the perception of the culture. That's difficult, I think, for folks and organizations to keep that mask on. I think mm -hmm. it's something we hear a lot more about of folks feeling that they need to ma wear a mask in organizations. And I think even now, one of the thing that, things that pandemic has done it's, it's forced people to become very realistic about the limitations that they have in their life and what's happening around them and really kind of see things differently than they had in the past. How long do you think employees will continue to be able to maybe wear that mask or not speak up about the things that might be detrimental to them or detrimental to the company, really? When do we start to live more of that truth that employees often want to talk about more openly without feeling some level of risk in doing so? Firstly, that's an excellent question. And well, truth of the matter is, if I, if I had the answer, Rebecca, I'd be on an enormous yacht with cases of really expensive champagne around me and sort of opining and holding court on it. <laughs> I think the, the reality is, is what you've asked is probably one of the most deeply individual questions of our time. Because the environment that you're setting up, the reality, I think, is very accurate for many people. I think the counterpoint, obviously, is we're also facing a time of significant economic upheaval. 
a lot of people in dire financial straits. And I think we can't for a second discount that on a good day, people would have, I'm going to call it the luxury. And for some, it is a luxury to say, I'm not putting up with this anymore. I'm out. And having the latitude or the financial well-being or just the repertoire of skills and talents to go somewhere else. I think we have droves of people across the globe that sadly don't have the luxury of saying, I'm out of here. I'm sick and tired of being treated like a drone or abused mentally, emotionally, physically even in some workplaces. I'm gone. I'm done. So I think that's an unfortunate reality of the pandemic too. But I think for those individuals who have the ability to do something else, I think you know the individual question is, what is their tolerance? And what is it that they are working to achieve inside their organization right now? And perhaps the most important question is, do they believe the organization is willing and able to change? Again, time and again, the hardest thing about culture is just simple reality. It's entirely about humans. And we are emotional, irrational beings at our core. We are. You know, <laughs> we will act in different ways day to day. And that's regardless of whether you're the CEO or the person sitting at the front desk. And that reality of culture and how we respond individually is, I think, perhaps where the answer to your question lies. But I think every individual right now is probably asking a very simple question. Am I prepared? to take more of this and what is my threshold or ideally behind door number two, I believe my organization can and is willing to change because they recognize the talent and the possibility of the people inside this organization. And I think for individuals who may be having a tough go of it right now, that should be a question that they're asked. How much are they prepared to tolerate and how much are the organization prepared to change? If only they knew how and where to change. Yeah, it's an interesting point of self-reflection that I think a lot of folks are doing right now and maybe not even realizing that so many other folks are thinking in the same way. Like, where, where is my path taking me? Maybe questioning or maybe even thinking more deeply about what is their purpose? Mm -hmm. What's the meaning of their work? How does it align to their values? Uh, but also, of course, their well-being. Absolutely. Interesting transition point. Yeah. Well, let me put it to you this way. That I think there's absolutely a heightened awareness of it. And I think as a lot of things we've talked about regarding the pandemic, it's probably long overdue. I think some of the societal things that we're seeing unfolding in the news every night reflect a lot of topics, conversations, introspections that we perhaps as a society have chosen to ignore or brush aside. So I think we're seeing it in very stark fashion erupting literally around us. You know, within recent memory, we've had Me Too, we've had Black Lives Matter, we've had profound societal upheaval because what's happened is the pandemic has mm. forced us to confront the realities of our businesses, of our societies that were hidden behind a very, very thin veneer. And that veneer has been ripped aside. So I think we're in a time of great introspection. And as we talked about before, that introspection is perhaps the most enormous opportunity for organizations and leaders around the world. What are you going to do with this introspection? And how are you going to change based on that introspection? 
is perhaps the largest question sitting on the table at every organization right now. Yeah, and such a fascinating question that is. A couple things came to mind as you talk through that. One being the tremendous opportunity for leaders in particular, individual leaders, to connect with the people in their organizations on a more direct level. So having honest conversations about what they're experiencing and understanding the differences that might exist across that organization, to your point earlier, how different people's lives and experiences are impacting their perceptions of their work, of their lives, how that might either help them engage in their work or potentially disengage from their work. I think that will be one wake-up call that a lot of leaders need in this moment, and that connection with their employees is critical in this moment. I, you know, a lot of times leaders have a lot of pressures, of course, in organizations to keep things moving along, and sometimes might deprioritize those connections with their employees. So one-on-one meetings, for instance, in lieu of maybe leadership meetings, or they got called into an important decision or something along those lines. I think those one-on-ones right now should be the priority of any leader in any organization. Well, I think, I think Rebecca, if you go back to you know, inherently your culture, if you look at your culture, it really is a bellwether for something quite simple, which is the level of commitment of your people individually and collectively. You know, what is the level of commitment they have to the success of your organization? Are they all in or are they voyeuristic and sitting on a chair and leaning back and waiting to see what happens next? You know, for cultures that have that commitment synthesized, those are the ones I believe that have created those environments where that introspection, that vulnerability of leaders to ask, what more could we be doing? What are we not doing enough of? What are we getting wrong? And being prepared to have the culture feed back to them in honest and unambiguous ways. That is a mark of the kind of objective leadership, vulnerable leadership we were talking about earlier. And I think that requires a a mind shift for some leaders who need to look in the mirror and say, what more could I be doing? What do I need to do less of as well? Because ultimately, your people will show up in remarkable ways and bring their full talent, their full energy, their full commitment, if they believe that it will be reciprocated by the culture and the organization. I don't believe that over time, you may get short bursts of energy and excitement from your people, but the sustained commitment of your people is the truest mark of the culture you've created. So again, if you ask me, What could leaders be doing? I think, again, they could look around the organization and say, do I genuinely believe I have the full and unambiguous commitment of my people? And if I don't, what is holding them back from giving us that commitment? And what is my role in creating an environment where that commitment naturally exudes and falls out of every pore of every person? What do I need to do to create that? Mm. I love that. Leaders taking that accountability for the behaviors in their organizations by modeling the behaviors they wish to see and understanding the value of those behaviors. Mm -hmm. Vulnerability in leadership is tremendously valuable because not only does that make an example to your people that it's okay to speak up, it's okay to admit your faults, it's okay to 
make mistakes and take accountability for those mistakes is really critical. But also in the relation to kind of new ideas and innovation and moving forward, mm-hmm. feeling like it's okay to say an idea that may not be the blockbuster or whatever. Yeah. Every idea doesn't have to be amazing, but if you feel vulnerable enough and safe enough to be able to share that idea in an environment that you can create dialogue and create progress, that's where some magic can happen. So you're right, leaders have this opportunity to demonstrate that behavior, that behavior of vulnerability, the ability to take accountability, to make mistakes and and talk about those mistakes and how you can improve is so very important. Well, Rebecca, let me just add to that because again, it's incredibly easy for us to beat on the leaders of organizations around us and tell them that they're not stepping up authentically and not stepping into their truth and all these good things. And you know, it makes for a lot of really emotive LinkedIn social media vernacular, as we talked about earlier. But I think we also do ourselves a bit of a disservice by beating on leaders who, in, in many ways, this is their learned behavior. You know, they've come up through environments where leadership was exalted as omnipotent and omnipresent and the sage know-alls of everything. There is a genuine leadership mythology that has created this environment. You know, I think as much as it's easy to take pot shots at leaders and saying you need to be more vulnerable, I think we also need to acknowledge that many of them don't wake up in the morning as narcissists and malevolent people who just want to wring everything out of their people but they've learned from the leaders that preceded them and from the exaltations of those leaders. So I think in fairness, we should cut our leaders a little bit of slack, but at the same time, push them hard on saying those days, those icons of leadership of a different time, the way to lead today is different. And we expect you to step into the necessity of leading differently. So I just don't want to make this about beating up on leaders and saying they're doing a poor job. Many of them are just human beings with a huge heart, trying like the rest of us, desperately hard to make sense of everything that's going on around them. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually very glad you said that. And any leader out there that felt that for me, that certainly wasn't my intent. I had worked with leaders here in the Indianapolis area last year. So I I held a series of conversations about innovating leadership. And with those conversations with those leaders... These weren't folks that were looking for continuing command and control. These were folks who were looking for opportunities for them to help their people succeed mm-hmm. that were struggling because their people were struggling. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things that's really important for us to think about is what you just said. Leaders are doing their best under the old rules that are no longer working. Mm-hmm. Many leaders are looking for new solutions on how to help their people succeed and help their organizations move forward. And as the rules change, it's very difficult to identify those things that will work in this new environment because simply these new solutions, these new kind of ways of work that we need when we move forward into the future, there aren't a lot of great, wide-ranging, one-way, one-fits-all approach. Because, mm-hmm. you know, even you mentioned it earlier in the conversation, every organization needs to understand how they operate, understand their goals, understand their customers, understand their employees, mm-hmm. um, and challenge what they'd like to achieve versus how they're operating in the actual behaviors in their organization on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's the gap that a lot of leaders are struggling to close 
How do you find ways to help your people be healthy, stay engaged, and also still meet the demands of your organization in relation to delivering, to being profitable? This dynamic is, to some respect, been flipped on its ear with the pandemic. Some organizations have found great opportunities to be able to shift gears and, and really find new and interesting ways to thrive. Others have really struggled for various reasons. Sometimes the markets have changed so drastically that the need um, that they filled in the past is simply not the same need today. Without a doubt. And again, this is the scenario that you set out is obviously 100% accurate. There are categories that have taken a significant hammering through no fault of their own because of this pandemic. It's just a reality of how significant the government and subsequently Consumer behavior has changed in light of the anxiety, the fear, the concerns that the pandemic has raised. Those are all 100% legitimate. I think, again, going back to something you said at the start of this conversation, you know, the, the very simplistic view that I have on, on organizational culture is it is the accelerant of your business strategy, period, end of sentence. If your business strategy requires your people to be more adaptive or requires your people to be more innovative or requires your people to make decisions faster or requires your people to collaborate in ways that they haven't done before. Perhaps collaborate across groups and units, partners and vendors in a way that they haven't had to before. If that's what your strategy is reliant on happening, the question you have to ask your culture is, is it able to act and behave in that fashion? And a dear, a dear friend, Stan Slap, who is perhaps one of the most delightful people working in the culture arena, you know, has a very unambiguous view of all of this, which is your culture is able to give you all of these things that you ask of it. Your culture just needs to know that it will be rewarded and that it will be treated well for doing that. You know, your people have the capacity to probably do everything that your strategy requires if you create the environment in which that's possible. That's your responsibility as a leader to create the environment in which the talent of your people can flourish and not be an environment in which they feel speaking up is going to get me ridiculed or marginalized, mm. failing at something is going to get me fired. Asking questions about why do we do these things the way we've always done them is going to incur the wrath of my leaders. If that's the environment you have, then you can't expect your people to say, I am willing to come in on a Monday morning with the very best, newest, freshest ideas of my life. Because there is no benefit, there is no upside, and there is no recognition for that commitment. Yeah, now those were powerful points. What you kind of walked through is you've wrapped around the essence of high-functioning teams, folks that work well together, that exude psychological safety, mm-hmm. um, that understand the drive, the common goals they're trying to achieve as a group, as a team, as an organization, and the leaders that are able to create that environment that allows people to feel that every meeting is safe those are the groups, the teams that do phenomenal things. 
And I think it's an interesting thing, and maybe I'm going to articulate this in leadership a little bit differently. It's an opportunity for leaders to be courageous in how they lead. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about vulnerability before. Some of it does require that level of vulnerability, but also the ability to be courageous enough to try something different than the status quo in order to change um, or alter their team's environment in a way that allows for that level of psychological safety that type of interaction where people feel safe even to make mistakes, take accountability for their mistakes. Because that's one of the great byproducts of having a psychologically safe environment is people are more willing to take accountability for their mistakes and learn from them because they feel safer to do so. What a great, a great powerful thing to think about in this time. Absolutely. And how we move forward, find creative solutions to move forward in very difficult times. Well, Rebecca, the one thing I would add to everything that you've just said, which I agree with wholeheartedly, is that I also don't want to lose sight of the fact that we all individually have a responsibility for this as well. And I can appreciate that it's incredibly difficult inside certain organizations to speak up and speak Mm -hmm. out, etc. And perhaps if it's that difficult, then... Again, back to your earlier question, what should an individual do? Well, evaluate their risk tolerance and say, enough, and I'm out. But I do think for anyone listening to this, I think the one thing that we all owe ourselves, our colleagues, our organization, and heaven knows, perhaps our society, is what accountability am I taking for my actions to step in and lean in and change the environment around me? For some people inside some organizations, that may be an impossibility, and I readily acknowledge that. But I think to put the entire onus entirely on our leaders and our managers, I think is a cop-out. If you're able to look in the mirror and say, I try in whatever small ways I can to make this environment or even the life of the person sitting at the desk next to me, real or virtual as it may be, just a little bit better. I think that's beholden on all of us Mm. because I think the ripple effect of that through our companies would be disproportionate. I'm not here to give some Pollyanna answer that, you know, we'll change the world by, you know, give everyone a Coca-Cola and and we'll all be singing on a hilltop. But I think the reality is it can be very easy. And over time, it can be incredibly hard because you're fatigued and you're depleted, your energy is depleted. But if you can take a moment, in one interaction a day to say, what can I do to step up and step in to improve the life of the person across from me? Just try it and don't leave it entirely to our leaders and our managers. We all have a responsibility and we all have an accountability to try that. And if it fails, do it again. If it fails again, then perhaps it's time to find it somewhere else. But don't stop doing it, each and every one of us. Yeah, such an important point. And as my listeners know, I always talk about folks finding that opportunity for them to get involved in shaping a better future. And this is kind of what we're talking about. Every person has that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we have this idea that it's for certain people, whether they be people out in social media, you know, people, leaders in our organizations. These are the folks that we feel might be the ones shaping the future. And I put this into the analogy of us sometimes feeling like we're in a boat heading towards the future with no oars. But the reality is, is that we all have the ability to pick up an oar and do our part to shape this future that we envision. And so that's why I highly relate to what you just said. But Mm -hmm. you're right. It's not necessarily just leaders or just organizations. It's what can we each do in our part, in our role, in our place in this world 
to shape the future that we envision or shape a better future. And we have this tremendous opportunity at this point in time to shape something better in our workplaces that takes into account the things that we understood even before the pandemic weren't working. And now those aspects are somewhat amplified. Mm -hmm. And now we have this opportunity to change company culture in particular, since that's kind of what we're talking about today, mostly. Mm -hmm. But company culture is evolving in order to take into account these aspects that will actually help us enter the future in a very interesting way, in a very adaptable way, in a way that might help people find their ability to feel well in the workplace. And what a great opportunity that is. And I'm wondering, too, one of the points that I think I've seen different opinions about or even just research about is the malleability of company culture. You'll have some folks, even one of my guests, Rebecca Costa, futurist that I had on the show a few weeks back. One of the things that she had mentioned is the fact that company cultures are usually set by the founders of that organization are somewhat static um, and remain somewhat unchanged over time. Um, however, I know that there's a lot of folks that really work hard on cultural transformations like yourself, helping organizations shift their culture towards something that might help bring them into the future or be able to help them meet their goals more successfully. So how malleable do you think an organization's culture can be or maybe should be, especially in this point in time as we're kind of venturing into a new or a different normal? Well, a couple of things. I think there are elements of your culture that, yes, I would probably use the term cultural calcification, you know, that harden over time and become, or at least perceived as intractable. I think that's an absolutely legitimate and fair point. The notion around founders set a culture for an organization, I think in many ways, absolutely. And certainly when the, when the founders are living, breathing manifestations of the reason the company was started, they become quite easy to point at and go, it's Jimmy's company and, you know, Jimmy started this company to make this change in the world. So I think those are two very legitimate reasons. But I do come back to a couple of other points regarding the malleability of it. One, I think, again, it comes back to what is it that your strategy requires of your culture to be successful? Period, end of sentence. What are the behaviors that we need exhibited inside our organization for this strategy to succeed. And if you look at those and say, those are no longer serving us, those in fact have become an impediment to our success, then I think it's behooven on, on everyone to make those changes. I'm not suggesting that they will be easy, and I'm not suggesting they will happen overnight. But I think you know the notion of thinking that your culture is a one-and-done exercise is a significant naivety. And in fact, I would suggest it's almost criminally negligent to think that your culture is a one and done, that a bunch of people can go to an offsite for three days, come back and, you know, put stuff on a wall and say, okay, done, next, let's move on. That's not. Your culture exists every single day and every single decision that's made across the organization. So it, it's a living, breathing entity. That's the thing. You've got to look at it as a living and breathing entity that every day looks around and says, what is this environment? And how do I protect myself in this environment as an individual? Can I act with full commitment? Or do I need to hide my creativity and new ideas? Can I speak truth to power? Or do I need to subdue my voice? That happens in every minute, in every organization, every day. 
that's your culture. So and how malleable it is, I think, is dependent on looking around and saying, are the ways that we're acting and behaving serving what we need to get done? Wow. And that goes back to that point about self-reflection and really thinking very deeply about how our behaviors and our decisions are driving our direction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what an important exercise uh, for any of us to do at any level of any organization or even folks outside of any organization to self-reflect and think about the direction that we're going and how our behaviors either help meet that end or not. So what a valuable exercise to do. Yeah. So I'm wondering, this is intrigued about a question that came up in our last conversation. Yes. I hope it's an easy one, Rebecca. I, I, you know, I've been throwing some curveballs at you today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if you've got an easy question, I certainly can't wait. For um, you know. Should I throw you a softball then? No, 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 no. You know, hard, hard and straight over the plate. How about we do that? It's Monday right. morning. We both had a couple of coffees. The hard and straight over the plate. <laughs> All right. Tell you what, this is what at least we had a primer about. We had this conversation the other day a little bit. So at least we've already kind of done this. So it shouldn't be too difficult, I hope. And this was actually, you did this to yourself because I think this is something you brought up. (laughs) And it was around when leaders are in in the future, sometime in the future from now, maybe 10, 15, 20 years in the future. Mm -hmm. And they are either asked the question or reflect on this point in time during the pandemic about how they reacted, maybe the behaviors that they exhibited during this time to either help them adjust to difficult times or maybe wish they may have handled that differently. So what are some of the things you think leaders might reflect on um, maybe 15, 20 years from now about this time during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. What do you think that will teach us about this point in time and this potentially even being like we talked about the shift towards a different type of norm in company cultures in the future? That's a great question. And I'm, as much as I may have raised it in our last conversation, I haven't miraculously come to a succinct answer on this last vote. <laughs> I think the reality is, and it won't just mm-hmm. be for me, but it will be for all of us, which will be to look in the mirror and say, what did I do to extend a helping hand in however that manifests? to the people around me so we could all collectively do better and use our distinct and individual talents. As a leader, did I create an environment where the people I brought together deliberately to make my company success? Did I create a place where their talents, the talents that had attracted me to begin with, could flourish? Or did I bring them together and lock them in a closet and only use the percentage of their talents skills and aptitude. I would suggest that would be one level of introspection. And I think the other thing for all of us is being genuinely objective around that, you know, and and maybe seeking counsel from other people nearby and saying, am I doing everything I can to unlock the talent of my organization? And if I'm not, ask yourself the question, why not? Nobody wakes up in the morning deliberately trying to sabotage their organization. But over time, it can be quite easy for them to wake up and say, my organization doesn't value me, doesn't value my contribution, doesn't tell me how my contribution matters to the success of this place or of the success of my team. This needs to be the organization in its entirety. All of us need some degree of validation that our hard work 
that the sweat of our brow, intellectually or physically, matters. And I think leaders have a profound responsibility to say, I let that happen. I let my people thrive. That's how I hope people will look back at this time and say, I did everything in my power to make that happen. And I was courageous and vulnerable enough to recognize when I strayed and I didn't get it right, that I had the courage and the vulnerability to say, what could I do better? And I actually did it. Yeah, that's powerful. When we lift other people and help them find or open up the best of themselves, there's not much more rewarding than that. Nothing. And uh, Rebecca, I would add to it, most, not all, of course, but most individuals relish and even demand that environment. And for the higher functioning, high performing ones, your genuine talent, the people that genuinely will be the accelerant of your success, they demand it. It's not a debatable thing for them. They demand an environment. They demand a culture where they can thrive. And I would suggest that as hard as the pandemic may be, economically, financially, emotionally for everyone, anybody listening to this should recognize that great talent doesn't have to put up with a mediocre culture. Great talent has alternatives and options. And if you want to attract and retain the very best talent, then heaven knows you better create an environment where they can live and succeed to the very best of their ability. If not, they'll find a place where they can. And it may be across the road at your competition. Absolutely. So let me ask you another question. And this one's going to be a little less intense, but (laughs) still a very important question. Mm -hmm. What makes you optimistic about the future? Humans. I mean, not to be pithy, but humans. I have a 12 and a 14-year-old daughter. And I think like every parent in the world, you look at your kids and you go, wow. Look at that hope. And for them, even in the midst of this pandemic, both of my daughters are remarkably optimistic about the future. So I, I do. I look around and I, you know, as tragic as it is to see cities on fire and people marching in the streets, demonstrating and chanting, I'm always astounded and I'm always in such awe of just our collective power as humans to look things in the face and try to find a solution. And we're at our best when we're together, when we work together to find solutions. I mean, I do. I look at all of the people taken to the streets and I look at them and I go, they are charged with a spirit that says status quo is not deserving of our affection, is not deserving of our ability. That's what gives me hope. Now, I don't want anyone listening to this to say I'm condoning violence and bloodshed and any of that stuff. I'm not at all. But I am saying there are many elements of society today that desperately need to be changed. And as human beings inside each of us is the ability to make those changes, no matter how small, individually. But I would suggest ultimately it's collectively inside your family, inside your community, inside your organization, that that collective change is possible. So again, you know, not to sound like a Pollyanna, but I have significant hope and optimism for the human race when we work together collectively to do good. We know what good and right is. We all do. 
And if we work towards that, I don't think anything is insurmountable. That's what makes me optimistic and hopeful for the future. I think um, I don't see that as Pollyannish because we're talking about doing the hard work, being brave, being vulnerable, putting yourself out there to try to do things to change the future. That's not easy. That's not sitting back. That's moving forward and taking action. So let's, let's say that's a good call to action to end with. Everybody has an ability to shape that better future that we envision for our society, for our organizations, um, and for ourselves. So Hilton Barber, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Rebecca, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you. And softballs or hardballs, it's been a a pleasure. And, And I appreciate, I deeply appreciate the work that you do. I appreciate the conversations you bring to the fore, the people that you illuminate through this series. I mean, there's some phenomenal guests that you've had on. And I think some incredible voices that, deserve to be heard more broadly. So thank you for doing what you do because you're absolutely a catalyst for that kind of change that I talked about earlier. So my thanks to you. Oh, goodness, Hilton, you're going to make me cry. (laughs) But I have to say this is my absolute joy and my personal calling. So I'm really glad to do it. And I'm so thankful for you to be on. Thank you. You have yourself a fantastic day, my dear. Well, there you have it. Hilton left me in tears. But these aren't the tears of someone ravaged by an ineffective culture or of leaders that feel beaten down by unreasonable demands. These are the tears that come from working hard towards achieving a meaningful goal with strong purpose by applying my strengths and then receiving affirmation that my work is making a difference. That is powerful. But before I tear up again, This actually helps drive home Hilton's points about the type of culture that allows people to thrive. One that recognizes the need to create an environment where people can work at their best, where they do not fear bringing new ideas, where their contributions are recognized and valued simply because they belong to an organization where their leaders have been introspective enough to understand what needs to change. And then, instead of settling for a status quo that doesn't work, They step up to enable the change that will build a better culture, a better organization, and a better future. So, let's reiterate our call to action. What is it that you will do, as a leader or as an individual, to help build a culture that allows people around you to thrive? Even if it's as simple as improving one person's day, the actions you choose do make a difference. Sometimes, a profound difference. And there is no reason that you shouldn't act now to make that difference you wish to see in your company culture or in our world. So go on, go help shape the future. To learn more about Hilton's amazing work, go to hiltonbarber.com. That's H-I-L-T-O-N-B-A-R-B-O-U-R.com. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then. Hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.